We're working our way through the, the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. All we know is that it gives us a peek into the cloth from which Christianity was cut, which is Judaism. And it helps us understand how we can look on the way things were prior to Christ and apply some of the rites and practices of Judaism to the way we understand God. So as we keep on going through, it's important to understand that the years had not been kind to the Jewish Christians who are addressed in this letter, the early all for one and one for all days that we read about in the book of Acts, those early days had been eroded by at least two famines and a number of persecutions. And forced to leave Israel, these Jewish Christians had forfeited both neighborhood and livelihood. Decades later, when this letter is written, their decision to follow Christ had taken its toll, not just on them now, but on their children, relative to the jobs they could get, the kind of things they could experience in this life. And because of the pressure put by the poverty and the opposition, some are going back to Judaism to experience the benefits that it afforded, the benefits that came when you could be part of the synagogue, and that was your relational world, and and it was a place that you made business contacts. It was the center of your life, and as Christians, they were not allowed to or encouraged to be part of synagogue things, and some are going back to Judaism to go back to experience some of those things. The writer warns them earlier in this, the chapter, chapter 6, about trying to do an out and about face. Mark read it last week. Let me just remind us of what he says. It sounds scary, and we're going to talk about what he means. It says in, sec, in Hebrews 6, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. contempt. For land that had drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Well, we've got to understand what the writer is cautioning is not people who are not going to church on Sunday. That's not the problem. The problem is people who had started to go to church on Sunday are now going back to the synagogue on Saturday. That's the problem that it's describing here. And the writer lets them know that they can't do an about face and go back into Judaism because at this point it's not an unintentional sin, it's an intentional one. They know that Christ is the Messiah and an about face 
for a Jewish Christian at the time. For a Jewish Christian at the time, an about face is spiritual suicide. And that's what he's warning about here. Um, In addressing their weariness and disillusionment, the writer focuses their attention on two things that they will need in order to keep moving in the direction that God would have them move, even though they are not having their best life now. He points out faith and promises. Let's look about, let's look at the role of each. The role of faith um, begins, read the first several verses in Hebrews 6. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He reminds them of the role of faith. Faith promotes enduring Patient waiting for promises to be fulfilled. Faith is what they will need to hold on to two decades into their decision to follow Christ when things are not as they would have them be. And chronic difficulty is eroding their motivation and enthusiasm and the writer is wanting to give them something that will help them to keep going and what he points out is faith faith when it is being talked about accurately is not something that allows us to get everything we want in fact faith allows us not to get everything we want but to Take one step at a time, even though our life isn't what we had hoped it would be. That's what faith does. God is going to fulfill his promises, but not tomorrow and not before we become discouraged. And faith is that which we use to treat our discouragement. Uh, Abraham is a case in point. And so as the writer looks for a biblical figure who evidenced faith and patience, inheriting what had been promised, he goes back to Abraham. Um, What he says in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. There's a couple of promises that God made to Abraham. One, that he would have a kid. He was about 75 when he received this promise, and Sarah was a year younger. And one year passed, and five years passed, and ten years passed, and fifteen years passed, and twenty years passed, and twenty-five years passed, twenty-five birthdays, no kid, no kid, no kid. And Abraham is getting to the place now where he he's way past childbearing age. And um, he experienced the fulfillment. He had a kid when he was a hundred. And then, it didn't end there. Everything wasn't 
25 years and now, you know, I made it. What ended up happening when Isaac was a young man, we don't know exactly how old he was, but at least a late teen, probably early 20s, we don't know exactly, but he was strong enough to carry a bunch of wood up a mountainside. And um, I'm going to read what happened to Abraham and Isaac, a, a story we're probably familiar with when Abraham was tested. Like, let me read it. God tested Abraham and said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. They made a trip, and when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. We make three observations about faith. But before we do, a few comments about a point of interest for any Holy Land geography buffs. Some of you don't care about this at all, so I'm not going to go on and on and on. But just make a couple of things about Mount Moriah. We end up hearing about that again in the Bible. There was a time when David counted the fighting men. And I guess you weren't supposed to do that when you were the king, because that would mean that you're trying to figure out how I can depend on military might when God wanted David to count on him. And so what ended up happening, David numbered the fighting men. And then as you find out in the Bible, when the angel of the Lord shows up, angels aren't fluffy Casper the ghosts. When when angels show up, people die. And in the Old Testament, angels spoke for God. And that's why, as we've talked about before, the tenor, the character of the Old Testament feels pretty severe. Would you agree? Pretty harsh. Why is that? Is God severe and harsh? No. But his spokespersons are. Angels are unembodied spirit beings. They don't have a body. They don't know what it's like to live in the body. They are individuals with one operating system. You and I, we have two operating systems. We are spirit beings in mortal bodies. We have a spirit operating system and a body operating system, and they tend to go in different directions. That's why we can't have what we want, because we want two things. Angels, do they have two operating systems? Absolutely not. They have one. Tell me what to do. Bingo! I'm going to do it, because angels don't have to fight themselves. And so what ends up happening then... Um, David looked up, and I'll tell you the story of what ended up happening, and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. It was not a pretty sight. He, with a drawn sword in his hand, extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell down. And David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. 
Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ariuna the Jebusite. And the threshing floor of Ariuna was on Mount Moriah, the same mountain. Same mountain Abraham offered his son on. David's son Solomon then came to a place where he was looking for a place to build the temple at Jerusalem. And David wanted to build it, but God said, no, you're not the one to build it. Your son is, Solomon. So here's what it says. Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Ariona the Jebusite. It's the site of the temple in Jerusalem, which was knocked down a number of different times. It was completely destroyed in 70 A.D., And biblical prophecy announces that there will be matters there. Right now, if you look at that site, it's the site of the Dome of the Rock, the Islamic Shrine. And there's a number of very interesting things that will happen there in the future. Um, The first appearance on Mount Moriah, our history, Holy Land, geography buff thing is over. Okay, so let's go on. Um, The first appearance on Mount Moriah was when Abraham came close to sacrificing Isaac. His faith in God was evidenced by his willingness to slay his son. You say, "Mm, how is that faith? I guess we hear Abraham reasoned that God would raise his son from the dead. That's what he reasoned. That's how he was able to go through with it because he believed that what God said would come to pass, that he would be given a son through whom he would have many descendants. So here's what it says later on in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Hebrews 11:18 says, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And so that's what Abraham believed God enough to know that even though he didn't know exactly how it would occur, God would keep his promises. Let's make three observations about faith. First thing, faith centers in a person. In fact, we'll make three comments about faith. It centers in a person, it's challenged by problems, and it claims the promises. Three things about faith. It first centers in a person. Faith centers in a person. Look what it says in Hebrews 6.16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final. For confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a promise here. And the promise is that with faith in Christ, he has entered into heaven. And there is a connection between us and him. Where he is, we will be. His, it's like an anchor for the soul. Sometimes life tends to blow us around and we don't know where we're going. We feel adrift. With respect to those who have placed their faith, believe, hope, remain in Christ, we are not adrift. We might blow here and there and not have exactly what we would want now. We might have difficulties now. And in fact... If you are his son or daughter, you do have difficulties. That's not a sign that you don't belong to him, by the way. It's a sign that you do. God calls his children to live by faith. And biblically, we live by faith, not by sight. If you look around at your life and everything is as you want it to be, Everything is just as fine as rain. I'd like to have good news for you, but I do not. It indicates that God's children experience difficulties now. But we have an anchor that holds into the place where God lives. Nothing can snap it. Nothing can break this thing. And why do we need to know that nothing can break this connector into the presence of God? Because we get blown around on earth and we've got to hold on to this thing. There's an illustration I like to, when I think about faith, there is a, um, let's imagine, we've talked about this before, but it's, I like the illustration. Like imagine a cliff face, okay? A cliff face, you got that? On top of the cliff, there is a, there's a, I forget what they call it. There's a specific name for the thing. It's like a put thing that you put into the ground. It has a loop in it. You put a rope through it, and you connect the rope to a harness that the, the person rappelling. You got, you got the drift? So there is a rope on the ground being, there's people holding the rope. The rope is attached to the top of the cliff to something with, I forget what you call that thing, with has an eyelid in it, so the rope is in, going through that. You got the deal, even though I can't, I can't tell you what it is. And then it comes down and attaches to the, and so you repel. And so there is a, let's call this rope, this, this line, let's call that God's promises. You got that then? Let's say we have a couple of kind of alternate things that are attached elsewhere. And we so we kind of have these other guidelines, and they're attached to other places, but this is the main one. You got this? This is, I'm, I'm good. You know the way I know what, whether I'm good or not? When these things on the side start to fray, you know, at that point, let's say, let's call this money. And I might say, God, all I need is you. <laughs> And that starts to fray. And some of you know exactly what that's like. You look at your, your checkbook, 
And you say, sure, I have faith in God, Mike, but i got to look at the balance. And we do. But it, it makes us concerned. Or relational life. There's a number of things. You know what happens? I want you to imagine that those things fray and break. What do you do? You're going to cling to this thing. You know what you're going to learn? This thing holds. Some of you know that, don't you? You've been through financial challenges. And you had to hold on to him. And you didn't get what you want. But are you getting what you need? It holds, doesn't it? In fact, the only way you're going to understand that it holds is when these other things that are easy to depend on, when those things start to fray. That's what faith ends up being built in the context of difficulties. Um, Faith centers in a person. Let's read in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. It's, he's describing um, that God's word and the promises is the belay line. That's what it's saying. God is the giver here, and Abraham is the receiver. I think we, would, we don't understand what it's saying here if we come away thinking that Abraham's faithfulness was the focus here. It is not. Abraham... Had some pretty weak moments. At one point, I, I forget where he was. He, he he kind of threw his wife under the bus. Sarah was a looker, and so there was, you know, so you know, so I think I forget, I forget it was Egypt. I forget where it was that uh, somebody had eyes for Sarah, and and then Abraham said, "Go, go, 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 go," and then uh, God hit them with a plague, and so then whoever it was ended up saying, "Go back to your husband." And it was a pretty scary place, and so we might understand that Abraham would do that, but then he went to this other guy, who really wasn't a powerful guy, and it wasn't as threatening, and he did the same thing, threw under the bus again, go sleep with that guy, you know, because I don't want to get hit. So Abraham, he, he was, he was somebody who believed in God's promises, but what we're to believe, it really wasn't about Abraham. It was about the promises that had been made to him. It was about God telling him things and God being who he is, God's word being what it is. Abraham hung on to it and learned through his life that God does come through. And that's why when it came to Isaac, he was able to hold on to the promises. Would you imagine that didn't come to him right away, did it? Faith and confidence in God's promises, that, that comes overnight? No, it doesn't. It takes time, doesn't it? it takes time. Um, when God wanted to reinforce to Abraham, he, they, he made an oath to him. He promised him something. And an oath, this is what it says in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. This is after he had started to, and the angel said, stop. And then there was a ram that was caught in a thicket, and God provided the the sacrifice, and then the, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. That's what he said. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. 
And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In the, nation, in the ancient world, people commonly backed up their promise with an oath. It was the strongest indicator of fulfillment. I swear to God that I'll do that. And what you end up doing then, you swear to somebody bigger than yourself. And the point is, swearing by someone greater, such as the emperor or one's God, would ensure their compliance or punish them for non-compliance. That's why when it says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, it's not talking about profanity. What it's talking about is saying, I swear to God, I'll do that. Because then when you don't do it, whose name gets drawn through the mud? You got it? I swear to God. Then, well, I wonder what God's going to do. God doesn't punish everything now. He doesn't reward everything now. That's why we need faith. There is a reward. There are blessings that he promises, but we hold on to them by faith. Um, In the oral culture of the ancient world, they didn't have a bunch of documents. So somebody swearing an oath in those days, that was binding. And if there's wonder about, is this guy going to pull through or not? His oath was like a guarantee, like a contract, uh, because God had no one hired to swear by. He swore by himself. If you're God, you can't swear by another God. Um, it's a promise. So faith is centered in a person, and the person is God. Faith is only as strong as its object. Strong faith in a weak object is weak faith. Any kind of faith in a strong object is stronger than weak faith. That's why the focus is not on us. In fact, do you know how faith grows? Let me tell you how it doesn't grow. Faith does not grow by your glancing at yourself and gazing at God. Faith doesn't grow this way. Gaze, glance. Gaze, glance. Faith grows by reversing that. Gaze, glance. Gaze, glance. That's why if you want your faith to grow, don't focus on your faith. Focus on God's promises. That's how faith grows. Faith is rooted in promises. But faith is also challenged by problems. In Romans, it talks about Abraham. Let me read. I'm reading a number of passages just to kind of fill in the details of the story. Paul writes about Abraham's experience and says, In hope he believed that he should become the father of many nations, As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Then it says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He glanced at his body and said, I don't think this is going to do a kid. So, but he didn't gaze at his body. He glanced at it and gazed at God. But you said, so his gaze and glance were right side up. And it goes on to say, He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, she didn't look much better. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He's in a dicey place. Things are looking sketchy. You know what it's like to be in a sketchy place, right? There's things around you that you don't want to see, and you're trying to hold on, and you're wondering how I can hold on. And what Paul would have us understand about faith is that it centers in a person, and it's challenged by problems. And what you do in order to allow your faith to float you or keep from going under is your focus on promises in the midst of problems. It doesn't mean that you close your eyes to the problems. It means you glance at them and gaze at his promises. Glance at problems. Gaze at promises. Glance at problems. Gaze at promises. It's very easy for us to get our glazing, gazing glance upside down. Would you agree? Really easy to get our gazing glance upside down. Gaze at problems. Glance at God. What are you doing? Gaze at problems. And God would have us, faith would have us flip that upside down. Gaze at promises. Gaze at promises. Why did they need to be reminded, these Jewish Christians? You can understand, can't you? You understand why they need to be reminded of promises? I mean, 20 years ago, it was the Rainbow Coalition in Jerusalem. Barnabas was selling his property. They were bringing it to the feet of Peter. Everybody lived communally. It was the heyday. It was a great time. All kinds of miracles, all kinds of stuff. But then one year became two, became three. Then Saul started to persecute the church. And he became Paul, but the persecution didn't stop when he became an apostle. Persecutions and famines, and then they were driven off into the Roman Empire, and and they're not accepted by Jews because they're Christians, and they're not accepted by Gentiles because they're Jews. And one year turns into two, turns into five, and now they see their little ones. Now they're growing up, and they have to work menial jobs. And year after year after year, and they thought that Jesus was coming back soon. But he didn't come back as soon as they thought. And Chronic difficulty is erosive. It is. And what he's saying is not stop worrying. What he says is start gazing. If you're in a tough place, don't look away from it. But don't gaze at it either. Find a promise and grab it. You don't grab the promise. I want you to listen to me. Don't grab the promise thinking that you'll eliminate the tension. You can't eliminate tension unless you don't look at problems at all. If there are problems in your life, it's going to create some tension, right? You don't grab the promises to eliminate the tension. You grab the problem, you grab the promises to endure the tension. To endure the tension without bailing out, without turning back, without going back. 
That's why we, that's why we reach out for promises to enable us to survive the problems, to endure the tension. Um, faith centers in a person and faith is challenged by problems. We also know as faith claims the promises. Um, look what it says. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter talks about divine power. Divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is within reach. It's not waiting. It's already been deployed. The problem is, how do we experience it? How do we connect with it? And that's what it goes on to talk about. He goes on to tell us where the power is channeled. He has granted to us, verse 4, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What is them there? Promises. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, and by them you can escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I want you to imagine there's a very powerful machine. Maybe you're trying to move something from point A to point B, and it's one of those skid loader kind of things that is mechanized. I was watching somebody emptying a truck out. Uh, I was in Boston at a wedding, and I was at McDonald's on a, on a, in a morning surprise. That's where I usually go anyways. Um, anyways, there was, this guy was unloading a truck, and there was this, you've seen those uh, dollies that they're mechanized, and they took a huge pallet, and, it's, and you put this thing, and he just kind of just pushes buttons and moves this thing, and he's this huge pallet, and he, he moves it around. Um, Imagine having one of those things and not being able to turn it on. I, they look pretty heavy. I think it would be a more difficult thing if you couldn't turn that thing on and if you had to move not only this big pallet, but this big machine that's supposed to... It would be very frustrating to have a machine and not know, and not know how to turn it on. Uh, what's interesting here is that um, we're told that God provides us with the power to bear the fruit of righteousness. Everything we need to arrive at godliness is provided, but it's important to know how we can access it. And that's where God's promises are talked about. God's power is channeled through his promises. Rooting our faith in God's promises is how we experience his power. It's how they get turned on. And it's not going to be overnight. It's a long-term process. We gaze, but over time, promises end up 
giving us power that will surprise you at times. It won't make you happy and yippy-skippy, but it will provide you what you need to put one foot in front of another. And that's what promises do. Um, God's promises are the building blocks of faith. Rooting faith in his promises is how we plug into power. So here's I told you, it's kind of an important thing. Everybody knows faith is a real big deal, right? If you were an alien and you came to this earth and somebody said, God left a book. And you as an alien were saying, I'd like to see what this book is about because I don't know much about God on the planet Zorro being where anyways. So this guy from this planet, which I can't even say the name because I can't, I forgot the name. I just made it up. Um, so he, if he, if he looks at, so he looks at this book. This is a God book. Oh, let me find out about this God, you know, and if he knows English. You know what's going to occur to him pretty quickly? Boy, this book talks a lot about faith. Faith. Faith seems to be a really big deal with this God, whoever he is. And what you, what do you find out if he read far enough? And faith is Attached to promises. That's how faith works. Faith attaches to promises. You want your faith to be what God wants it to be? Attach it to promises. In the midst of problems. And hang on to it. Peter goes on, says, for this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter identifies the fruit of righteousness. What is it? Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. I ask people this from time to time. Can you see anything that's missing? Look at that list. Look at the list. Anything missing? When you think about the kind of things you need to be the person God wants you to be, can you find any gaps here? Oh, self-control. Yeah, it has self-control. Love, yeah, it has love. Knowledge, yeah, it has, it has everything. I think this is it. And so the foundation of virtue, and it's like a building. The foundation of all this stuff is faith. The power to participate in the divine nature is channeled by God's promises. And if these qualities are lacking, We're supposed to add to faith virtue. Faith is the foundation. And if you add to faith, build on faith, it's something, faith is something that never becomes irrelevant. It's the basis. You add to faith virtue, knowledge, godliness, self-control, brotherly affection, love. So here's a question. Let's say you're looking at the fruit of righteousness. Mm, Love. mm. Brotherly affection. mm. 
self-control, uh, virtue. Mm. If these things are not as you would have them to be, what's the problem? What's the problem? Faith is the problem because faith is the solution. And that's where Peter, he ends up saying, whoever lacks these qualities in verse 9 is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. Do you know what we're supposed to cling to with faith? That we've been forgiven. It's hard for us to believe we're forgiven. But that's what faith demands. The New Covenant says, I will be Helios, merciful, benevolent, favorable to your unrighteousnesses. I'm telling you what it says. And God doesn't stutter. I will be merciful, gracious, benevolent to your unrighteousnesses and will remember your sins no more. What are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with that? Yes, you're supposed to put your faith in it. What happens when you put your faith in that? When you cling to it, even when your behavior is not what you'd like it to be. That's why we've talked about this. And I, every once in a while I bring it back to your memory, because I do this to myself when I do things that I don't want to do. I do those four things. Some of you know those four statements. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I kind of remember them, Mike, but not really. They're new covenant statements, just four of them. God in me, God with me, good ahead of me, guaranteed. When you do something that you wish you hadn't done, it is really important for you to remember his promise of forgiveness. This is not nice. I'm not being nice to you. I'm not saying, oh, isn't that nice that he would tell us. We're, we're talking about faith here. We're talking about the foundation. This is more important than we can ever understand. So when you do something wrong, exercise your faith. Not kind of being a wimp about it. Don't be a wimp about it. Be strong about it. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. I did that thing that I shouldn't done. God, you're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. My anchor holds. It's never, nothing can separate me. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good still ahead of me, guaranteed. I saw something I shouldn't have seen. You're still in me. Gaze, gaze, glance at the behavior. Gaze. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good still ahead of me, guaranteed. You know what's going to happen? You'll find power turning on. You'll find virtue starting to light up. Goodness. Self-control, knowledge, brotherly affection, love. 
We look at the lack of self-control and we say, I can never be who God wants me to be because I'm not self-controlled. Self-control isn't the root of the issue. It's the fruit. Faith is the root. Faith is the root. Apply it to forgiveness. Because what Peter says, and again, I'll stop jumping up and down, and I'll stop being... I just feel so strongly about this. Faith in forgiveness is seminal. Seminal. It's the beginning. And when your root is drawn deep into forgiveness, then the rest of the tree can nourish. I asked God once when I was in college, God, why don't you give me victory over this sin? I don't want to keep dealing with this. And I don't hear voices. I didn't hear a voice. But there was a thought that came from out here. And this is what it said. It's more important than you learn to be forgiven than for you to get victory over this sin. Hmm? Hmm? It's more important that you learn to be forgiven than you be given victory over that sin. He's still in you. He's still with you. Good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. Grab it. Don't let go of it. Grab it. You understand? If the root's okay, the fruit's going to grow. Um, faith is only as good as its object. Biblical faith has an object, God's promises. Lose sight of God's promises and faith becomes impotent. Hang on to it. becomes powerful. Brett, let's do a closing thing. Father, thank you for your good purposes and promises. Um, you understand that it's challenging for us to gaze at them and grab onto them. It's much easier to gaze at problems or gaze at misconduct. And yet you're pretty clear and you understand us. Well, I pray that as we remain in your promises, as we are reminded of them week after week after week, that slowly, gradually, progressively, we become more deeply rooted. Strong roots don't grow overnight. I wish they did, but they don't. I wish, I ask that you would allow our faith to be more deeply rooted in your promises as the weeks and years go by. In Jesus' name, amen.